Hello, 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 and welcome to the Podcast Spotlight, the offshoot series of the Economical Rice Podcast designed for podcast fans and brought to you by podcast fans. I'm your host, Danny, and today I am absolutely delighted to have Chris McMurrin, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at NUS and producer of the Singapore-based podcast Home on the Dot. Chris, welcome to the show. All right, Danny. Uh, hi, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so... To get the uh, audience familiar with you, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, I grew up in the States, uh, from Iowa originally. It's uh, right in the dead, dead in the center of the U.S., thousand miles from the nearest body of water. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I grew up there, and now I'm on this tiny island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, did a PhD in the, in uh, geography at the mm-hmm. University of Colorado. And then I took a job at the Department of Japanese Studies here at uh, National University of Singapore. And I've been very happy here, uh, going on almost nine years. I really love my job, great colleagues, amazing students. And um, as anyone who has or may listen in the future to Home on the Dot, uh, they know that uh, you know there's some great stories to be told here in Singapore. Yeah, perfect. So you mentioned that uh, you did your PhD at the University of Colorado. Um, I'm just curious, right? So Colorado is known for its snow-capped mountains, and it's very different <laughs> from Singapore, where we don't get any snow at all. What made you move to? Uh, what made you decide to move to Singapore? Uh, well, I got a really good job offer here. <laughs> that was the biggest reason. Okay. Um, I had been, you know, on the market for a couple of years. Um, job market was pretty tight when I was finishing 2008, and it just turned out that I got this offer in Singapore. And uh, I turned to my wife and said, well, uh, you know, could we live in Singapore? <laughs> and I would never move anywhere that she was not willing to go to. Um, and she is uh, Japanese and she had actually traveled through Singapore. And she's like, yeah, it's an easy place to live. Um, great place in, in Southeast Asia. You can, I can get any of the Japanese food I need. Um, and she said, let's go for it. So we, uh, we took the job. I do miss the snow, though, I have to say. I used to like shoveling snow. I used to like cleaning it off my windshield. I know that sounds crazy to anyone <laughs> who lived through that. I mean, you, you said you went to University of Wisconsin, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure you, you know, hated those really wintry mornings. But I actually, uh, you know, used to jump up and, and go out in that snow and just love it so much. <laughs> and uh, I used to snowboard as well, which I also really dearly miss. Yeah, yeah, I, I gotta say, I missed that the the snowboarding aspect as well. And um, snow snow is fun for the first two days, I think. <laughs> once once oh. it turns to a slush, and uh, you know, it becomes like this sort of mixed state between water and solid and liquid mm-hmm. and solid, and yeah, it gets really disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I grew up with that in Iowa, and and you know, plenty of really cold mornings trying to get my car started to go in for, you know, early band or early wrestling or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I had several traffic accidents uh, because of ice and snow. So I don't miss that element of it. But oh, um, wow. I mean, very small things like one time I hit a light pole and another time I hit the rear end of my band teacher. So you know, <laughs> embarrassing, small fender benders, but all caused by ice. So, yeah, I don't miss that. Um, <laughs> but I do miss uh, playing in the snow and just being out in the snow, um, working in the snow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what was that um you know that shift like for you? Because of you know, as you mentioned, it's pretty different culture, uh, t- tempered wise, but mm-hmm. uh, cultural wise, how how was that like for you? The change adjusting to Singapore. Yeah, um, I had lived around Asia in the past, mm. so 
um, I had done uh, an exchange program in um, in China, mm. and I had lived for a while in Hong Kong, um, teaching English as a second language during my undergrad years. And then I, after I finished my BA, I went straight to Japan for three years. So I had been around the region, I guess. I hadn't been to Singapore before. Right. Um, adjusting to, you know, living in a, in a major city, that wasn't such a big deal. I'd, I'd lived in London a bit in the past. Yeah. And um, I guess the biggest thing really was the temperature. The climate here is really hard to get used to. Uh, <laughs> even now, I just find myself exhausted because of the humidity, uh, very tired of my own wardrobe because I, you know, I'm wearing the same shirt for eight years because <laughs> it never goes out of style. Of course it goes out of style. I mean, of course my, my students probably think I have terrible taste. Right. I'm, I'm a bit frugal and just can't see the point in buying new clothes because the season never changes. And, you know, it's just easy to put on the same shirt again. Um, the, I guess the biggest adjustment right away was getting used to a different education system. Mm. Um, well, a couple things. First of all, just trying to understand the difference between polys and JCs and the different routes that students can take to get to university. Right. And um, the second thing is really the pressure on students to get into university. And um, I, I think that I am still not, I mean, I, I didn't experience that myself. And so I'll never really know what students went through yeah. as a feeling. Um, but I'm trying to get closer and closer to that. And um, I, I do have some some students open up quite a lot about the those pressures that they feel to excel throughout their lives. I mean, to, to grow up having only one purpose, it seems, which is to be excellent in um, in, in academics in particular. Yeah. And of course, to participate in a bunch of CCAs that make you a well-rounded person, but um, but which leave you no time to just explore and be yourself and be sociable and be um, be free to make mistakes um, and those kind of things. I had tons of freedom in that way when I was growing up in a tiny town in Iowa. I mean, my high school graduating class was thirty people, wow. very tiny town, uh, you know, agricultural community. Um, where we had tons of freedom to make mistakes, right? And um, very little pressure on on schoolwork. Um, I mean, really, I don't remember doing much homework. <laughs> I don't think I'm being selective in my memory. I'm thinking, you know, maybe an hour or two a week was what I devoted to homework. And so I, I just came from such a very different place from my my students. Yeah. Uh, and and then understanding, like I said, the the ways that students get into school and the different JCs and the different levels of JCs and the difference between JCs and polys and reading the newspaper and all this focus on PSLEs and I mean all of that stuff was so new to me. Yeah. Uh, then there's also the NS. <laughs> I mean, national <laughs> service is such a fascinating, a fascinating. Um, aspect of the maturation pro uh, process in Singapore. Yeah. It's like this time out for <laughs> all men that is not an option. I don't think we we'll, we'll call it a time out, but <laughs> it feels like it's a it's a pause on the regular you know, in some cases it's a pause on education. Right, right. Uh, because really if you have been training your mind to be an engineer or training your mind to be a physicist or training your mind to be um, you know, a social scientist and suddenly you're told, okay, you have to devote 
90% of your daily energy to your physical fitness or following orders or learning some new skill or some new trade in NS. And then two years later to come back and, and, and feel like, oh my gosh, I've lost so much. Um, I, I mean, I may be a step behind. I don't want to say you lost anything because of course you've gained a lot and I, I would never want to disparage NS. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's very effective. It, it does a lot of things. It's just, it's just a curious, uh, it's just something I didn't know about. Yeah. And it, it is interesting to walk into a classroom and know that year ones, I have uh, a group of young women and then a group of young men who are two years older and they're all in the same class together and they have these different, very different life experiences for the last two years. And it's, it's just getting used to that as well is, um, yeah, it took some getting used to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the things you touch upon and the things um, that you mentioned, right? Talking about the education system, talking about NS. <laughs> I, I don't want to be, I don't want to claim to be an expert on it, but, you know, these are things, I don't know if it's like a top down thing or if it's like a men mentality thing, but I'm sure a lot of it is tied to, you know, sort of like the economic incentives and, you know, um, you know, the sort of, sort of job opportunities or the earning opportunities that you'll be able mm -hmm. to get after you finish. And that's why there's such a heavy uh, pressure on students. The the curious thing, you know, I I did my uh, undergrad in the in the United States, and I I could sense that huge huge sort of difference in sort of how people take uh, to education. Like to me, when I went there, I was like still having this mindset of like, oh, education is the most important thing. So mm -hmm. when I took when when I took everything so seriously academically, and I came out of all my classes with like you know nearly scoring all A's, and I was like thinking, why is <laughs> Why is university so easy? But then, <laughs> but then what, what I was, what I was missing out or what I failed to understand is that in the States, it's not all about academics. There's also the social life. There's also internships. There's also making connections. There's all these kind of different things. And right. it's pretty big difference. Yeah. 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 So I think for anyone who's coming from outside into this, we, we can, I mean, I, I've had these conversations with uh, fellow academics from the U.S. We can, be genuinely worried about our students when they are so stressed about grades and mm. it feels like they haven't um, learned the kind of coping mechanisms um, or the ways of, to prioritize their time to say, I, I'm going to devote not 100% of my time and energy to grades, but, you know, 70% and that'll be enough and I will become a well-rounded individual in other ways as well. Hmm. Um, and even in those, you know, those other things that won't be competitive, it will just be for fun or it will just be for self-fulfillment. Um, and I'll do these things because I enjoy them and I'll know what I enjoy. Right. Um, and all of these things, we, 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 I think quite a few of my colleagues and I, we're quite worried about our students when we see them really ramping up for exams, for instance. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I feel quite bad for them. Um, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm the one making the exams. So I could do it differently. But um, yeah, that reminds me, when I was in college, I really did take one class in particular and one professor's class really seriously. I, I mean, I really enjoyed his classes and, and we worked really hard for this, uh, this class. And it was getting to the end and we were near this final exam and we knew what the questions might be. Mm -hmm. And so a group of us, like as, you know, half of the class or more, we stayed up all night. We worked on all these brainstorming, all these ideas of what the, the questions might be. And um, the next morning, the professor wasn't in the room 
and it was his friend. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm here to deliver a message. You know, so-and-so says he knows how hard you worked last night. He got some calls late at night. You know, people knock on, on his door at 11 p.m. <laughs> asking him really, really serious questions that show that you really understand this material. So the final exam has been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like we all erupted because it was so an, such an amazing feeling. But we also knew that we had earned it. We right. really did know the stuff. And we didn't have to prove it on an exam. It you know, wouldn't have solved anything. And I wish I had that freedom <laughs> to, to acknowledge to students, like, you are doing so much. You don't have to actually take that last step. And in the meantime, we can all enjoy life a little bit. I mean, he, he went to a baseball game with his kids that day instead of coming to the exam because he's like, <laughs> okay, I've done my job. You know, he could, he could really say he had done his job. We definitely knew the material. There was no reason for us to sit and sweat in a room, writing down and cramping our hands up as much as we you know. <laughs> but that was it. He's, he had done his job. So, so enjoy life a little bit. Uh, anyway, I, I always think about that and just wonder when, you know, is it going to be in a decade or two decades when, when Singapore, um, you know, families and individuals and, and society as a whole can care just a little less about grades and just a little less about performance and um, give people a chance to shine in other ways. Yeah. And I mean, I think recently there have been some dialogue. There's been quite a bit of dialogue on, on this aspect you know, uh, focusing on the education system, focusing mm -hmm. on, you know, how, how we can make schools a better place for learning and enrichment rather than just being, you know, focused on getting the grades. So I think there is some movement. I don't know if we'll ever get to a position whereby a professor can just come in and say, Hey, your final has been canceled. <laughs> yeah. um, that's think, an amazing thought, right? <laughs> I think if you did that at this current moment, uh, students would get freaked out. You start getting. <laughs> calls and emails <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 but anyway so you know we've been talking quite a bit about your experience here in singapore the things you start to notice but mm -hmm. um of course another area where you do this is your podcast home on the dot uh as i understand it i did a little bit of, of reading on your or on your biography this uh stemmed up from one of your classes that you teach right mm -hmm. so could you talk a little bit more about that sure um i teach a general education module called home Mm. Um, I devised this module, I don't know, six years ago or something. Um, uh, I was, uh, tasked with coming up with a general education module on a theme that was, uh, within my wheelhouse, uh, something I could handle, but that wasn't, um, daunting or too minor that no one would want to take it. You know, mm. it has to be kind of a broad, attractive, um, topic and, uh, you know, just over the course of a weekend. I was brainstorming a bunch of things. I came up with home. I am a geographer. I have studied home, the idea of home. And there's plenty of great scholarship out there, not just in geography, but, you know, the, the idea of home is, is universal. Right. It, is, um, it, it means something slightly different everywhere and to everyone. So it's an endlessly interesting topic, uh, and you can approach it from an economic angle, a political angle, the, geog the geographic angle, the social angle, the gendered angle. You can think about refugees and migrants. You can think about travel and tourism. You can think about the construction of home, the design of home. I mean, you just can think of so many ways that that home uh, can be 
you know, tackled as an academic topic. Right. And then you just put together a syllabus that says, okay, we'll tackle one of these, these topics every week. Um, so, so yeah, I taught this class. I had a, you know, started, uh, enrollments were always around a hundred students mm-hmm. and around the time I developed the class, I knew that I wanted to have roughly around a hundred students. And, uh, right away I made my syllabus and I in, in that envisioned one of the assignments to be the summary of home in one object. Wow. Um, at that time I had started to listen to the BBC's. Uh, special, um, they did it. They did this special thing with the British Museum, where it was like a history of the world in 100 objects. In the early 19th century, Japan had been effectively isolated from the world for almost 200 years. It had quite simply opted out of the community of nations. Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures describes the secluded and calmly self-contained country in 1853, just before American gunships forced its harbours to open to the world. Mm. They were very brief, um, I think they were maybe 10 or 15 minutes, uh, summaries of one object from, you know, some time in history, and they... They just put together this exhibit, they put together a book, they put all of this stuff together just to talk about this incredible sweep of history through these singled out 100 individual objects. Mm-hmm. And I kind of envisioned or hoped for um, this class to tell me something about home through 100 objects. So mm. I would get each student to focus on one thing in their house or one thing that meant home to them. And by the end of the semester, I would know a lot about Singapore. And I would somehow, I mean, at that time, I was thinking about putting together a blog or something that would help me or help anyone else, you know, if I put it up online. Maybe geography students in high schools in the U.S. would <laughs> would find it and say, oh, okay, here's some project we can use for homework. Right. So I, I did that. I had students do this one bit of homework. And then the next year, I turned it into something more, and, and it kind of blossomed from there. I mean, I had students doing individual projects on an object, and then I had them doing group projects on a an individual, oh, sorry, an institution or a um, corporation or some kind of place that mm. uses the idea of home to sell itself or to sell something, right? So the classic example is IKEA. It's... Um, catchphrase was uh, home, uh, the most important place in the world. Mm. And so it makes you, it ties you into all of the emotionally charged feelings of home and convinces you that it is worth spending more money at <laughs> Ikea because what's more important than home? You know, whatever you want to spend on it is, is a good investment because that is the most important place. Yeah. Right? So I had students going out and doing these kind of projects and then over time, I d- decided that um, just having the students share this information with me was kind of selfish and a, a bit of a waste. Yeah. And so I was trying to envision how can they share this with a wider audience. And, um, you know, students in FASS in particular at NUS, they're just writing all the time. And some of them are really good writers. Some of them are so-so writers. It doesn't really matter the quality. It's just that I think they do it so much that it becomes repetitive for them. And I was trying to think of an assignment that could get them, give them a little bit more creative freedom. Mm-hmm. 
And I know some people have their students do videos. And every time I see one of these videos, I realize that the the bar to clear for a professional looking video is incredibly high. Yeah. You have to have really <laughs> amazing equipment or they all look shaky and terrible and the sound is bad. Yeah. And uh, the fashions look out of date in, in <laughs> two minutes, right? So you look at video made by students from five years ago and it's kind of, it's unwatchable. <laughs> and so I got the idea to do a podcast instead as an assignment because I thought it would be a little bit more timeless and it would be a very different way of storytelling that wasn't writing and wasn't trying to impress the viewer with some kind of, you know, shaky video. <laughs> instead, they could, you know, focus on the sounds, focus on creating a, um, a sense of place, um, immersing the, the, the listener into a particular location. Mm. Um, and yeah, just telling a good story with the human voice. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about how podcasting as a medium differs from video. And I think what I want to do now is to sort of highlight um, some of the stories that you brought up. And, and earlier you mentioned that um, Home on a Dot touches on some of the uh, institutions in Singapore that mm -hmm. make Singapore home. So, you know, there are episodes on NS, there are episodes on HDB, which were fantastic. But I think one of the highlights of the season. So you've done like one season now and it's 10 mm -hmm. episodes. One of the highlights that I thought was uh, for me as well, and I think uh, you mentioned it earlier as one of your favorites, was the episode Homework, which was, I think, born yeah. out of your assignment about the object. And it talks mm -hmm. about a sewing machine. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, so could you tell us about how, you know, that's that the sort of the sound aspect of it really carries through with the storytelling? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for mentioning that, uh, Danny. Uh, so I had this, you know, this assignment, this idea of a home in a hundred objects. One of the early years, I had a student who wrote about her grandmother's sewing machine. So when she was growing up, you know, before her school days, she was um, being taken care of by her grandmother as her mom went out to work. And um, she always knew that her grandmother was there and looking after her and, and loving her. And, you know, creating a welcoming home for her because she she would say she used to play on the floor next to the sewing machine. And mm. it would be kind of rumbling all the time. This whirring sound uh, reminded her that her grandmother loved her, that she was at home. And she wrote about this in a paper. And it was a, you know, it's a nice story. And she had a, a, a good point uh, that linked to the theory of the class. But the whole time I kept thinking that this medium of the paper was not doing it justice mm. because really, I mean, she's just trying to describe something that you can only sense, right? She's talking about the sound and the vibration of this machine and the floor and, and that linking to something that is such a deeply felt sense of love for her family. You know, she did a great job of writing it, but of course it was missing something. And so when I, uh, when I finally found a couple of, really talented producers that also took the class. They're the ones who produced the episode on HDB. Um, I, I got them in class. They made a podcast as one of their assignments. And then I said, hey, 
I need you guys to work for me. We're going to go interview this grandma. We're going to go listen to this sewing machine. I, I need to make this well, happen. She wrote, quote, One of the most memorable times of my childhood was where I would sit beside Amma, playing with my toys while listening to the sound of the wheel being spun by the electric motor as she sewed and tailored all day. The sound has always been a reminder and affirmation of Amma's presence and the immense It was for me a kind of excuse to to follow up more than a year later on this student's paper and really dig into it, into that more, um, you know, the sense that she got from this machine. I could really only get if I was in the room feeling that vibration and hearing that machine. And so, yeah, that, that episode is really a, something that it's kind of, it was sitting in my mind for years and finally we got to go do it. And I, I was like, you probably hear it in my voice when I'm there. Cause we, you know, as part of this episode, we go to the house and I'm interviewing the grandma and she's telling me about her, her life and how she used this sewing machine to help bring her family into the middle class and, you know, live the Singaporean dream and all, all of these things. And I'm kind of on cloud nine the whole time. I can't yeah. control my excitement and my yeah. joy at finally meeting this woman and, and looking at her machine. Um, but I think that's another thing that something about podcasting does is it, it um, it's joyful in a way um, that I think video doesn't <laughs> really capture. There's something about, I just imagine that every video that's made is like, okay, take two, take three, <laughs> take four. We had a bus in the background, get in the way. Now there's something that's, that's cutting into it and, and if you make a podcast right, you know, you do it right the first time and you get that energy um, that can come from, you know, human interaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I've got to say, I, I, I listened to that episode, I think, just today. And, you know, I've listened to all your other episodes as uh, as well in the season. And I think that was well, the most... Well, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> that was the most excited you've ever sounded the entire <laughs> season. <laughs> and now, well... <laughs> And yeah. No. No. I finally yeah. know why. <laughs> it might be a. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a problem. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> we may talk about this later. But one of the inspirations for the whole thing also is uh, Malcolm Gladwell and right. his um, re, uh, revisionist history. And and if there's one thing we could say about Malcolm Gladwell, it's that he takes himself very seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I may have listened to him a bit too much because <laughs> I feel that way. When I listen to those first 10 episodes of Home on the Dot, I'm yeah. just feeling like, man, why can't I just lighten up? <laughs> so so severe. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, that's that's uh, one of the draws as well, is that, you know, um, you insert yourself in the in the sort of narrative and it's it makes the whole listening experience very, you, you sort of take the listener on the right, right? As the narrative host, the sort of guide. And Gladwell does this as well. And I think that's what makes him such an effective storyteller is that he's always so serious. But at the same time, when he's passionate, he's really passionate. And you that's can tell. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I know there was an episode where he was talking about golf in Los Angeles. And, you know, he starts out like next to a golf course, like on a sidewalk. And you can hear the traffic behind him. And yeah. you can just tell he's really angry. He's like, why is this green space off limits <laughs> to me? Why can't I go over there? Why can't I cross this fence? And it's all about, you know, privatization of, of land exactly. in this massive city that just lacks any kind of green spaces that aren't privatized. And, and he really does take the listener on that kind of emotional journey 
and say uh, the the first episode of the whole podcast. You know, he goes to uh, I can't remember which museum it is now, but he's in London. And, you know, he's super excited to finally see this painting. <laughs> yeah. And you can sense the excitement in his voice. And he's like, there it is, up on the wall. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I try to do that when I can with <laughs> episodes because, because clearly that's, that is how I feel about Singapore. Yeah. So it, is, it is really an exciting place. And it really is fascinating that you can, uh, you know, one of the other episodes uh, is about hawker centers. And mm. I just love that people do like cross the island for a, a, a bowl of noodles. I mean, it's incredible um, that nowhere else in the world would you say that. Like, oh, I was on the other side of the country last week for for a, for a hot dog a, for some really nice prata. <laughs> what? Yeah, for a hot dog, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I flew to San Francisco for the weekend for, for a bowl of soup. <laughs> Uh, you know, chowder. Got to have yeah, that chowder. Have I'm that back chowder. in New York. Like, no, no one, <laughs> no one does that uh, unless you're super wealthy and don't mind getting jet lag, right? Yeah. Um, but in Singapore, you can do that, and I'm and I'm still, you know, fascinated by this uh, by this little red dot, and I am still fascinated by the stories my students tell me about it, and I want to. I mean, this is very selfish of me, but I also want to kind of. Um, insert myself in their lives a little bit more. Mm. I feel like there's, um, I think, I think Singaporeans, aside from family and very close friends, can be quite private, and that's their business, right? They, they're, they're welcome to do that. But I did grow up in a, in a country, in a society where there were lots of backyard party parties and backyard barbecues, and you brought a friend along, and it was totally okay. And, you know, in the winter months, you just went over to someone's house for a potluck. And um, it was just friends. It wasn't family. It was just strangers sometimes uh, or people you barely knew you had over for dinner. Right. And I feel like I've been living here a long time and I kind of know my apartment. <laughs> and <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> you know, if I could... I always am hinting to my students, like, uh, if you want to invite me over during Chinese New Year, I would really like it. <laughs> um, because I think that's, that's just mind-blowing to them that I – maybe they don't imagine I would want to do that. But I really want to – I want to get into – I want to see where people live. I want to have a better sense of where they're coming from. I think yeah. it will make me a better teacher and a better human being. Yeah, I think, I think um, part of that is because uh, – we have sort of very strict boundaries between um, people, uh, between people of authority and, you know, where you are. So, mm. so, so people sort of like to, I think it's a very clear sort of a hierarchy bond boundary. Like, for example, right, even though I've, um, I've graduated so long from like JC or something, I still can, can get used to calling, uh, my teacher by their, by their name. I still call them like a Miss Tan or Miss oh, Chin really? or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's it sort of gets ingrained to the to the point of habit. <laughs> so don't take it personally if they don't invite <laughs> you over for Chinese New Year. I, yeah. uh, okay, I won't, but I really wish they would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right.
right. But uh, anyway, let's uh, get on to talking about the podcast. And your podcast recommendation is Malcolm Gladwell's fantastic revisionist history. Uh, so please, uh, Chris, before we talk about the episode that you want to uh, recommend, can you please describe revisionist history a little bit? Okay. Well, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is a very well-known author of nonfiction. Um, and he got this idea a few years ago that he wanted to do something slightly different. And he decided to put together a podcast that's, you know, they're 45 minutes to an hour long each, re-examinations of slices of world history, uh, told through a new lens, basically. Uh, and some of them, you know, some of it is, is based on serious historical scholarship, so it's not like he's retelling them for the first time, uh, but he is bringing them to a wider audience. And anyway, I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell does a great job of of telling these stories and going back in history a bit and and talking about how things could have been different. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I guess I should also point out that about Gladwell, right? He has a very, as, as we mentioned earlier, he likes to insert himself into these stories. And a lot of these, um, a lot of the topics, I think, are personal interests of his. And <laughs> one of my all-time favorite podcast episodes is the one he did on the McDonald's, the French fry. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, that was so good, so brilliant, yeah. and, and you can tell that that his excitement and th- enthusiasm is hundred uh, percent genuine. Genuine. No yeah. one is a nerd about French fries like Malcolm Gladwell is a nerd about French fries. Yeah, it's so funny because you know he ends he he starts out that episode talking about how the flavor of French fries has changed, and I never really noticed, I guess, but I am old enough. I mean, if you know, if you go back in time, I think it was something in the 1980s. He's talking about this shift in the use of these oils, yeah, uh, which heat at different temperatures and have all kinds of uh, you know problematic aspects to them. But anyway, you know, he does that really deep dive and goes into talk to food scientists and everything. It's like really amazing reporting. But yeah, you're right. He he is truly just angry that his (laughs) favorite food has changed flavor. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I got to do something about this. I got to figure out why this is the case. Yeah. Yeah. I, l- I love the part where he went to a food lab, <laughs> got got like a bunch of food scientists to re-engineer those yeah. classic McDonald's fries. Yeah, that's right. Got like a bunch of millennials to <laughs> taste test the fries <laughs> just to prove that, hey, yeah. he was that right. Was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to wonder at his budget. Like, how can he... You know, he's flying around the world doing these things, doing these crazy things. I, yeah. just, I envy that part of it, right? He can do whatever he sets his mind to. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty but, cool. But, but I mean, at the same time, it's a wonderful show. It's got amazing production. The writing's fantastic. Oh, Everything yeah. is it's great. But the episode that you are going to uh, introduce to us and recommend to us today is the very first one out of Revisionist History. And this one is called The Lady Vanishes. Could you please tell yeah. us what this is about? Well, this is, uh, it's about several ladies who vanish, but it's, uh, and, and if you want to be technical and theoretical, it's about moral licensing. Mm. But really, it starts out by talking about a particular painting. There's a painting that hangs on a wall in a museum, and when it was first done, back in the, what is it? It's called Roll Call. Oh, it's, yeah. it's popping into my mind. It's called Roll Call, and it was done by a woman in uh, the... Elizabeth, Thom- Elizabeth Thompson in oh, uh, 18, so 
1874. 1874. Okay. So it it hangs on this wall. It's a beautiful painting. It's an amazing painting. And it was um, hung in not a very conspicuous location when it was first put up, but Mm -hmm. people flocked to see it. And they were amazed by it. And she ended up winning this major prize. And she won the prize, but then she kind of, she didn't get admitted into the Royal Academy and neither did any other woman for decades. And um, the whole idea is first wondering, okay, so why didn't this woman who made this amazing painting and had a very, you know, she had a bit of a career after that, but then was largely forgotten. Why was she forgotten? Why was she not included in the Royal Academy? What, what explains this? And, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell turns to social science and says the reason is moral licensing. And this is the idea that uh, once you give some kind of credit or award to one minority, it gives you the license to to imagine that you've you're not racist and not sexist (laughs) because the proof is, look, I you know, we gave the award to this one woman. So clearly the rest of society is no longer sexist. And, you know, and then it gives you license to not um, give another woman another award for 50 years. Yeah. Um, that the, it's an excuse by society um, that once you do one good thing or once you treat one m- member of minority group equally, you no longer have to treat all members of minority groups equally. Yeah. So, so perfect, right? So this episode is about this very, very intriguing idea of moral licensing. And, you know, I, I just like to point out that this is a very pernicious form of uh, mental gymnastics mm. because um, you might think that, you know, you're immune or particularly conscious of your own thoughts or biases or whatever, but this is a pretty sneaky one, right? So, for instance, I have a, I have a few personal examples, right? For instance, um, moral licensing can be the case whereby you go you you go to a McDonald's, um, you order Diet Coke, but then you or you upsize your meal or something like that. You know, you you think like you're on a diet, but then the next week after the diet, you just eat more than you would normally would, right? Or a more pernicious case, uh, maybe closer towards uh, this example of the uh, of this episode. Um, could be something like, oh, you know, I, I recently bought my wife something, like something really expensive. I, mm-hmm. you know, so I showed her all this love. And then now I feel entitled to, to, to get, receive something back or, you know, to be a little bit mean when she doesn't act like how I would want her to act. Mm. Yeah. So it, it is, it's not as uncommon as people might think, even though it's, it's all sounds all, you know, theoretical and stuff. It's very, right. very pernicious. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the great example in in the U.S. these days, and I, I really should stop watching U.S. news because I live <laughs> far away from it, and it's so frustrating. But the great example in the U.S. is the instant of the instance of the black friend or the gay friend, or mm. you know, it's like um, it's okay to be. I mean, it, it's kind of an excuse for institutional racism if a political leader says, "Look, I'm not a racist because I have a black friend," <laughs> um, that that somehow justifies not changing the system <laughs> because you have one person who is willing to stand next to you for a photograph and be your your token black friend i mean it's i'm i'm simplifying of course but but there is some sense um you know malcolm gladwell even says this like it could be that the rise of trump was because we 
elected Barack Obama. And people mm. thought, okay, well, if we as an American society can elect a black man, then um, we can continue to be, it kind of gives us this license to be outwardly racist. Mm. Because then people will say, but racism is gone in the US because we elected a black president. And so, you know, the rise of white nationalism, the rise of, uh, of a leader like Trump could be indirectly because we, we went one direction so much that people are like justified in going the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. Making and, excuses and, for them. Yeah. And, and within the episode itself, uh, Gladwell did bring up that there were some psychological studies that actually proved this, right? Like yeah. They were saying stuff like, um, I think people who voted for Obama were more likely to be racist or, or something according mm -hmm. to their study. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, if you take this form of moral licensing up to the political sphere, this is the kind of result you get. And, you know, yeah. I've, ever since I listened to this episode, right, I listened to this quite a while back, but particularly with social media and, and, you know, Twitter and Facebook or whatnot, it makes it really easy for people to sort of virtue signal, right? Mm. So I've mm. always wondered, it, it's very easy to, for them to just say some one or two lines or be, or act angry and just uh, say like, oh, uh, this person is doing something bad and this, this person is evil and so and so. And, you know, I've always wondered, couple this idea of uh, easy access to virtue signaling with moral licensing. I always wondered if you make, if you make being virtuous easy, you know, are, will there be any consequences of that? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now, yeah, the rise, the rise of easy technologies and other things that the kind of stuff that makes it easy, listening to a podcast easy is also the same stuff that can give us all these <laughs> other, other ways to be evil, I guess, um, <laughs> or to ignore our, our own, um, our own weaknesses. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating, I mean, of course, he's an interesting guy anyway. And mm -hmm. he talks about race, a race in a in a particular way um, that I will never experience. But um, but he has an interesting take as a Canadian on a lot of things that are uh, you know to do with the U.S. And he's just a great storyteller. And yeah, I don't know. I I kind of listened to that episode by chance. I think it yeah. might have been referenced on something else that I love, like um, yeah, This American Life or. Um, yeah, um, Radio Lab, something like that might have mentioned it. And so I just listened and I just couldn't stop listening. Yeah. And um, I think those, you know, these Malcolm Gladwell episodes, I think they can be listened to again and again. Mm. And I really get so much out of them every time uh, because of the storytelling, because of the production value, because of the use of these interesting, you know, usually so social scientific ideas that, He's not heavy-handed with the scholarship. He just says, here's something that's useful to think about yeah. in our everyday lives. Yeah. And I think that's what I was aiming for with Home on the Dot was to say, you know, something like, um, like I did an episode about the little, the burnable paper houses. Yeah. And really, the episode is about death, you know, and how unhomely death can be. Um, when it's connected to home, and yet it's the place that most people want to die. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, we so so home and death are very connected, and yet we try to separate them. And I was trying to do all these mental gymnastics while I was talking about these burnable paper houses. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to do the kinds of things that I think Malcolm Gladwell does, but I I don't know if I was successful. But 
I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, for for what it's worth, um, I thought that was a really fascinating episode as well. If uh, any of you out there are ever interested in learning about our traditions with burning down paper houses, paper cars, paper yeah. monies, that's paper a good money, place to go. Paper shampoo bottles, paper, paper shampoo videos, bottles, paper, paper iPhones, you know, cans of Guinness beer. I mean, it's like paper everything. Yeah, paper yeah. iPhones and iPads. <laughs> so fascinating. Yeah. And um I and I I don't mean that in a kind of joking way. I really think it's I think the people who design these things are so creative and they're trying to you know it's like the the strangest market is uh <laughs> you know mourners what do mourners want to buy for their loved ones who just passed away? Uh yeah, paper reclining chair with a massage function. I mean that's what my grandfather who just passed away would really want yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's interesting i don't think you can focus group this stuff you just have to throw yeah. it out there in the market and see what people buy but anyway it's it's really interesting yeah you know what the you know what the funny thing was is that um there was that one segment in that episode you did right uh that episode is called burning down the house so yeah um so you went to talk to these shop owners that actually sold these uh these these paper houses mm-hmm. or whatnot right so in my mind, I was thinking, right, so, you know, this is a very sort of particular niche part of Chinese culture. I was thinking, what must be going through these shopkeepers' minds when they see this American guy coming, <laughs> asking them about Tell their business? Tell me about this paper. <laughs> yeah, he's a nice guy. I mean, I, I, I uh, go to that wet market every Saturday and I see him. <laughs> this really great uncle who you know sat and, and he didn't sit he, he was working while he was talking to us but you know my students were looking around like oh my gosh my chinese is terrible my chinese is terrible well yours is better than mine okay, you talk to him. <laughs> and um and they you know interviewed him and i asked a bunch of questions and um yeah i ended up buying one of those houses <laughs> because i i felt like it was at least my investment of money into his shop um because he said you know his kids don't want to take it over it's not a very um you know you're working finance or accounting what is it Uh, auditing right yeah auditing. i'm sure he'd rather his kids work in auditing than (laughs) (laughs) selling paper money um so so it's probably another like some of the hawker stalls it's probably a you know dying industry um which is sad in a way because it does fulfill a need and it is a very interesting niche uh, aspect of Singapore life. And so I'm really glad, you know, that was all inspired by student homework. Uh, (laughs) They thought, they were like, how can we put a twist on this so that uh, we can impress Prof. McMorrin? And they really (laughs) did. They really did. You know, they didn't focus on somebody's, you know, somebody's coffee cup or something (laughs) on this really thing that i didn't know much about and i was like oh that's so cool yeah yeah Yeah. and i I think also um learning about all these different quirks that singapore has right i think that's one of the beauties for me as well as a podcaster is being able to learn more about all these different facets of of singapore life that you know if i wasn't doing this i probably would have never ever looked into mm-hmm. but mm. but yeah now this gives me an excuse to well not an excuse but a reason to yeah. go out there and start digging more and you know start talking to people and you uncover all these wonderful wonderful little things and it's yeah it's amazing <laughs> that is so that is so i didn't really think about it that way but i love what you just said because i know there's a lot of focus in singapore in general and around the world on lifelong learning 
it's more than just reading a book, right? It's like mm-hmm. you, you're, you're trying to answer a question. You're curious about something enough to go out and interview people, talk to people you haven't spoken with before, um, you know, make new social connections, go to places you haven't been before. It's like this amazing bit of uh, self-directed homework <laughs> that is, is truly like lifelong learning. Like you're going to keep learning new things and making new connections because you're curious and want to share something with the world. I mean, that's yeah. the real beauty of, of podcasting for me is it's available to anyone at any age. And, you know, even if you don't find a big audience, you'll find somebody who's interested in what you have to say. And in, in, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter if anyone listens because <laughs> you get to learn something and have fun doing it um, and, you know, maintain your curiosity and and uh, and all these things along the way. So that's yeah. really so valuable. Yeah. And, and I mean, um, a lot of times when people talk about podcasts and the shows, right, I think... Uh, what often is left out is, you know, the, the motive behind wanting to start in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. they always focus about, you know, who the target audience is or what the show is about. But then, you know, <laughs> the sort of journey that a podcaster goes through making these shows, uh, it's a, it's an incredible journey. And, mm-hmm. you know, the different friends I've made in the community as well, all these people will tell you a similar story in terms of like, they start from scratch. They didn't know anything about recording or, or editing or whatever, but they just did it anyway. And, you know, they mm-hmm. made all these friends and yeah, they, they pursued all these different interests and yeah, it's lifelong learning, as you said. Yeah. <laughs> Inter- pretty interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So to just tie back to, um, revisionist history, right. Um, I was actually a little curious about this, this one aspect of it. Uh, because I think I, I, I'm not sure if this was intentional, but, did you model your your theme song for Home on the Dot on revisionist history? <laughs> oh, you're not supposed to know this. <laughs> my name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to the first episode of my podcast, Revisionist History. Every week for the next 10 weeks, I'm going to take you back to examine some I journey to the heartlands of Singapore to hear the machine for myself, to listen to the history of this object, and to understand the commitment and sacrifice of a woman for her family, channeled through her singer sewing machine. Uh, so what happened was, honestly, <laughs> I, was, I, I needed something. And uh, the two sound engineers who I first hired they um, were like, okay, what do you want? What do you want? And I was like, well, I want something like this, but this. <laughs> and they they just went home and they um, their computers have synthesizers and they're just <laughs> playing around and they end up with something. You know, at some point with the podcast also, I love having a deadline because you're like, okay, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be done. And you just put it up. Yeah. And the same thing happened with the theme music where we were like, okay, that sounds okay. Keep thinking, keep thinking, keep <laughs> thinking. And then weeks later, we're like, oh my God, we just have to put that up. That's That's got to be as good as it gets. Yeah. And then it's the thing you're kind of stuck with because, <laughs> because you have to have something has to be the same each week, right? Mm. Um, and in this case, it's the music. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if you think I should get new music. No, no, no. I'm not going to find the way it is, but I did hear there's a rumor among my team (laughs) 
that they might uh, actually record it with live instruments, which I think would be so cool. That would be incredible. I mean, I mean, I I, I didn't bring it up to make fun of it or anything. <laughs> I just I, I noticed it because I was listening in between yeah. your these two shows, and you know, there was that the, the the little bit of the violin towards the end. That's uh-huh. the one that is the most distinct. <laughs> oh right, I, it's like it kind of drags out a little bit at the end. Yeah, yeah, the 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 boom 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 with yeah. with the violin. Yeah, so so. <laughs> I th- I just came into this interview thinking that you were the biggest Malcolm Gladwell fan or something. <laughs> uh, not so much. I mean, just, that was uh, I. I just played that for my team and said, you know, I like the way it builds during the during the narration. You know, kind yeah. of ending the intro and it, and and you feel like okay, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> and I wanted to. I wanted that kind of same same feeling. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, do you have any last things to say about Malcolm Gladwell and revisionist history? Um, well, I will say one more thing about this first episode: the the um, the roll call, the, the about roll call, and it, yeah. it ends up being it ends up being this great masterful storytelling where it's not just about history, but it's also about the present and about the recent present, and yeah. it's about you know sexism in Australian politics. I, I think I kind of knew about that episode when it was happening but it was like you know not american politics so i wasn't paying attention too much to it mm-hmm. but um to hear the kinds of comments made about the first uh female prime minister of australia you know by her colleagues it is it is jaw-droppingly shocking sexist behavior that i still am kind of it's incredible to think that this takes place in the 21st century. And yeah. of, of course, now my own president has said far worse things and, <laughs> and nothing's shocking anymore. Um, but at that time when I was, you know, listening to that episode, I was just thinking, my gosh, how, how do these people live with themselves? And of course, Malcolm Gladwell's answer is it's moral licensing. Yeah. Right. It's like it justifies all of that behavior. Uh, just yeah. the fact that she was allowed to become prime minister, uh, you know, it, 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 it's so insidious. Yeah. And then you do start to see it all around. And, um, and so I think it's very insightful as well. Yeah. 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 I, I thought that bit was really, really eye-opening as well. I mean, you know, er- earlier on, we were talking about like the consequences of, you know, virtue signaling and moral licensing and how it brought it up to political level, what kind of impact mm-hmm. that will have. And, this story with with Julia, I think that the politician's name was uh, Julia Gillard. She was the first yeah, ever right. Australian MP, and uh, PM, 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 yeah. And this was not that long ago. This is like yeah, 2010, yeah. 2013. Yeah, very recent. Yeah, and you know she would she would tell stories about how you know other other politicians would call her like a witch or you know a bitch or or stuff like that. Yeah, it was really really nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Australia has a particularly nasty brand of politics or if if it really is moral licensing, but God, I was, yeah, I was pretty it's appalled. so appalling. Yeah. 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 And, um, after, after listening to, to The Lady Vanishes, I actually went to listen to a few interviews, uh, that Julia Gillard had. She seems like a pretty steadfast, remarkable woman as, um, I'm pretty sure any woman who has survived through that would be. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah. yeah, that is a, an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this is an amazing thing. It's, um, 
again, this podcast can make you incredibly sad, incredibly angry, incredibly like overjoyed and curious. And uh, I think that's the magic of uh, this revisionist history. It can really touch in ways that I feel like, you know, the best movies do that, but most movies either make you laugh or just make you like um, excited at the action. (laughs) Yeah. But but this is, um, it's such a different way of storytelling just with the voice. And I think it's uh, in some ways a lost art that hopefully podcasting is bringing back. Um, And I think there's, there's just something remarkable about um, the power of yeah, of this, this format, and I think Malcolm Gladwell takes advantage of it completely and does an amazing <laughs> job. I recommend it to anyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so, uh, and with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, for people who are interested in getting in touch with you or finding Home on the Dot, where can they do so? Oh, right. Well, uh, let's see. You can Google Home on the Dot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you can Google my name, McMorrin, uh, and then put NUS in. I mean, right. we're on SoundCloud, and you can look for us in the iTunes podcasts uh, under the title Home on the Dot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, if you search for us in SoundCloud or uh, iTunes podcasts, you'll find us. And you can also just li- listen on air. Uh, sorry, on the internet. So if you um, if you just type in if you just Google Home on the Dot NUS, <laughs> it'll take you right to the web the page. I can't remember the name. I, I mean, I don't remember the name. We have a blog. And the nice thing about the blog is I'll say that you can listen directly in the blog, and the blog has the short bios of everybody who's produced on the episodes. Is a great team of students, and everyone should hire them. I mean, if you're listening and you have hiring capabilities, hire my students. They're amazing. And uh, the other thing that's nice is there are um, the entire transcript of every episode. So mm. if you are a second language learner or if you know someone who um, is hearing impaired and wants to read the, the text, it's all there. And also every one of the episodes has the literature that was cited it has the links, like if there was, uh, in one of the episodes, there's a link to a, a short um, uh, speech by the Prime Minister of Singapore, and we have yeah. the link to that original video. And there's also, um, in some cases, photographs mm. and uh, of different locations. So it's we're, we're trying to make it you know, accessible, um, additionally interesting if people really are curious and want to learn more about these different places or these different institutions, they can, they can learn more about them by going on the website. Um, and it's, it's easy to find. And I don't have the name off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's all right. And uh, you can probably look it up on any uh, podcast app as well. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, if you like this episode, please do a big favor by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing to the economical rights podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. All the links and details to the shows discussed in this episode will be available in the show notes on the website www.economicalricepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the show, you can drop a message on the social media links below. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, with special guest Chris at the Podcast Spotlight, the show by podcast fans for podcast fans.